And I think, I think um, if we are going to have a new royal inquiry into something, I think we need to ban old ladies' perfume. Hey, we're not here to talk about cafoon or perfume. We're here to talk about how to make capital growth, get strong yields, find that next hotspot, and invest in that lifestyle precinct, which is going to be absolutely game-changing for the future. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, we're going to code crack what it means to be sustainable in 2021. We're going to talk about sustainable real estate and some of the green swan events which have recently unfolded across the nation and seem to continuously unfold. We're going to crack the code. Yes, we're playing Donkey Kong of the green economy, green economics. What does it mean for you as a property investor into the future? What does it mean today? How can we further understand our education when it comes to things that are green? Are we going to all hug trees? Is climate change real? What is actually going on? And why, as a property investor, should you even bother caring? Today's show is all about cracking that code and understanding what the future may mean for you as a property investor when it comes to climate resilience. Yes, does that sound fun? I tell you what, I've just been to a very interesting place. I've just got back from Lord Howe Island. If you listened to my last podcast, you probably comprehended it. I took off straight after that podcast to Lord Howe Island. I tell you what, that place is pretty special. Yes, if you've never had a chance to go, I would suggest you do. It is absolutely cracking. It is an island which is the lowest coral reef in the world. And it's situated about an hour and a half off Port Macquarie. To get there, you just jump on a Qantas flight. But I tell you what, it's a little plane. So if you don't like flying, it's probably not the best place in the world to go because you you fundamentally sort of hang out with the pilot to get there. But once you land, it is breathtaking. In fact, Lord Howe Island really only allows around 300 visitors at any one time on its island. And you just see the most amazing wildlife, get to do the most amazing adventures. It's probably not the best place to go if you want to have a fluffy duck and sit on a deck chair and read a book. It's actually more designed around adventure. So if you like the idea of uh, swimming with turtles or swimming with sharks and uh, floating over beautiful coral and being a little bit aquatic, it's definitely the place for you. If you like the idea of climbing uh, bushland and mountains, it's definitely the place for you as well. You basically feel like you're constantly in a little triathlon to go and see uh, bird life, sea life, and uh, get amongst it. It's really a great adventure place. As for the, uh, I guess, amenities, well, it is it is a, a little bit interesting. You've got sort of one cafe, one milk bar, 
There's one little bar there. The barman's also the physiotherapist. So Lord Howe Islanders uh, are a great breed of people. And I tell you what, my great friend Marcus Pierce does all these studies around the blue zones around the world where people won't die. I've told him about Lord Howe Island. I think Lord Howe Islanders will actually live longer than mainland people in Australia. Got a theory. I've got a hunch. Uh, he's going to go and check it out because there really is no stress there. there. There is fundamentally even a society which basically lives on foot and just enjoys the most uh, magic of scenery and there is certainly no stress. Uh, if you want to rob uh, convenience stores, Lord Howe Island is a great place. Um, fundamentally, the shopkeepers aren't even in their shops. So if you like stealing things um, and you want to put things in your backpack, you know, or some, some Coca-Cola, some CCs, and, and fundamentally flog things from a convenience store, Lord Howe Island is ideal because uh, it really is a, an amazing place. It's, it's kind of like uh, stepping back in time. The only downside to Lord Howe Island is particularly when you travel there as uh, as a sort of, you know, someone who's young at heart, middle-aged, I'd like to say, I mean, in my 40s. Um, you travel there sort of outside, I guess, of traditional holiday seasons when other 30 or 40-year-olds travel. Uh, you are travelling there if you go there off-season uh, with the Grey Army. So a lot of retirees hanging out at Lord Howe Island. And uh, interesting though, you know, I got to speak to a couple of them and uh, ask them about their world because in the one cafe that you get to hang out in, uh, fundamentally you run into the same people every single day. And if you have breakfast, lunch and dinner at the same cafe, you're going to meet a few people. For me, uh, yeah, I got to got to have a, have a bit of a dinner with um, an older couple and they passed on some of their wisdom to me. One of the things they did say around wealth was, as an older person in Australia, you tend to be discarded. Yes, that doesn't sound nice, does it? People, they were sort of saying that, you know, the, the, the way it sort of um, you, you tend to feel is, is you, you, you tend to be sort of discarded by society. They were saying that money really allows you to continue living a fun-filled life and not feel like you're, you know, set out to pasture to fun fundamentally see your last days. So I thought that was really, really interesting because Lord Howe Island is not a cheap place to go to. I mean, an airline ticket is per person probably $1,300 return. So it's not a place, uh, you know, that is is cheap fundamentally to get to so it's quite interesting seeing i guess this older gray army which had fundamentally built obviously well through their life um for the most part to to go and visit uh this place because i i think you know if you're going to spend a week there you probably drop seven eight nine grand um and you know as a retiree that's that's probably a fair bit of money to 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 let go of and yeah, I found it very interesting to, to comprehend that money almost gives you freedom at that age group so you're not 
fundamentally, you know, just shoved in a corner. And that's the kind of feedback I was given um, by a very wise, much more mature couple. So sometimes I think it's great to learn from your elders. They they certainly are there at that stage of their life. So rather than listen to me tell you how to get there, sometimes it's better to listen to people who've got there, right? And uh, I think that's just amazing. The downside of the Grey Army and eating at the one cafe uh, where the barman is also the local physiotherapist uh, is the amount of... Uh, old lady perfume in one cluster uh, it w- was, in, in some respects, unbearable. Um, we talk about the COVID clusters, the Avalon clusters. No one's talking about 30 older women with horrible Chanel perfume on being clustered in a cafe with someone who gets cafooned. And I tell you what, uh, I certainly had to break free on many occasions from uh, the, the, the mature, older female species perfume. And I think, I think um, if we are going to have a new royal inquiry into something, I think we need to ban old ladies' perfume. Hey, we're not here to talk about cafoon or perfume. We're here to talk about how to make capital growth, get strong yields, find that next hotspot and invest in that lifestyle precinct, which is going to be absolutely game-changing for the future. And I'll tell you what, today's show, we're going to dig into some of the occurrences which are occurring. You know, we are seeing a lot of green swan events and I want to recap on this. I want to talk about it again. I've probably touched on it in a few past episodes but we're going to have to build some wealth in our life and to live a fun-filled life as an individual here in Australia. There's some new statistics which are out. You need about $135,000 individually to live what would be considered a fairly fun existence in Australia. I think most people would agree with that statement, $135,000 individually per annum to live a pretty fun life. Now, we can all move to Argentina, by the way, if things don't work out and live a fairly fun life, you know, with $30,000 or $40,000 per annum. Or we could go live in Bali and Seminyak and uh, probably spend a similar amount. So we're very blessed here in Australia that we've always got options. But if we do want to stick to better healthcare a uh, better uh, political situation and obviously um, stay put in a place we obviously love. We're going to need individually around $135,000 to have fun in retirement per person. So per couple, that's probably about $270,000. Remember to create income from real estate. On average, I sort of teach that for every $2 million worth of real estate paid off, you have, you're probably going to pull around $100,000, maybe a little bit more in revenue. So at a base level, I think to have fun, we're going to need, you know, four or five good pieces of real estate in our portfolio. And that's cool. It's just a bit of a journey to get there. And uh, it is... 
as I've discussed in past episodes, a bit of a process which is not quick. It takes a little bit of time. So seeing as we're on this journey together to build wealth, to end up on a passive income, I think it is worth talking about the green swan. Yes, we've had the black swan with COVID and we seem to always run into green swan events recently. Doesn't it feel like there is a climate impact occurring just about every other week? And the recent floods on the east coast of Australia, whereby we had torrential rain, rain not seen in that uh, dynamic for many, many decades, flooding uh, certain communities, places like Port Macquarie, parts of Coffs Harbour, fundamentally went underwater. We, as property investors, need to be very diligent around how we go and invest and where we go and invest and how we can beat the green swan. Yes, we're playing Donkey Kong with the green swan itself because I do believe that we live in a changing planet and I think there is ways to make money out of the change as a property investor but also end up in a position where we don't lose money. Remember, the number one rule of property investment is not to lose money. So if we were to wake up 20 years from now with an asset which produces no income, for me, that is going to be a very wasted journey. And the green swan and economic effects of climate potentially is going to eradicate a lot of property investors' future income as we start to see big problems with insurance around the world, around Australia and certainly around New Zealand. So the key themes I want to talk to you about is the idea that cities and real estate is well on its way to a future of net zero emissions. And that is something that I think we as property investors probably aren't turn we're turning a bit of a blind eye to the reality of what is occurring out in society, some of the big changes which are unfolding. Investors really need to start to navigate this to this pathway to net zero. And I think understanding what I'm talking about, as I'll further allude to, is going to help reshape your portfolio so you can attract the consumers of tomorrow and, of course, end up in a place where potentially your property is first pick amongst a very crowded real estate marketplace. Now, as you know, I teach the idea that we've got to go out and choose really good real estate and a really good location where people can live, work and play because behavioural economics teaching us that people are now more set to live more local than ever before. In that behavioural economy or suburb, we want to be able to move around still. We want to be mobile and we want to have uh, 
a knowledge-based community to rent those properties off us so we can charge more rent into the future. And we also want to link to the idea of this wellness premium. And wellness as well is in sustainability. And today, the green swan is as much about sustainability as it is about living longer, as it is about conservation of the planet. Every day around the planet, the world needs to produce 96,000 new houses, new properties, 96,000 a day. Every single day, 3 million people are drifting into cities, every single week rather. People are drifting into cities. So we talk about this kind of like de-urbanisation here in Australia of New Zealand of a few people running off to Lake Widow to go and live. And today I want to question that because if those people study some of the climate dynamics, they may just reconsider actually moving further afield in certain areas. And as we see, many people move to Port Macquarie. Is their house underwater today? Again, 3 million people a week around the world are moving to cities and cities are on their way to a net zero output in much of the world. Every 3 minutes and 55 seconds in Australia, we need to create a new property. In New Zealand, it's like every 7 minutes and 30 seconds, a new dwelling needs to be created. So I find real estate is actually kind of easy understanding these dynamics, right? Because to choose a live, work, play, wellness, mobile, knowledge marketplace, really you've just got to work out that in a city there's only so many beaches, there's only so many green belts, there is only so many suburbs close to urbanity and things like our CBDs. And then you fundamentally buy in them because they are the places which are going to skyrocket in value. In Victoria, there are 18 suburbs which are considered bulletproof for climate change. They get a six-star rating for livability. In Brisbane, there are around 20 greenbelt suburbs where your suburb is fundamentally built and backs onto a forest-like reserve, which is as good as a beach. If you can imagine a people, society, love living close to the beach because the beach allows lifestyle, but also equally people love living close to an urban forest because an urban forest allows lifestyle. So when we think about how to map out a property portfolio, I kind of break it down into really sort of three sections, beaches, green belts, and CBDs. So again, the idea that human beings ultimately want this very livable experience, but there isn't much of, uh, there are only so many beaches, green belts, and of course, major capital CBDs in Australia. Think about a CBD, for example. Really, there's only three or four of them that are fun in the whole of Australia. Melbourne, Sydney CBD, they're freaking awesome. Brisbane CBD is awesome. Uh, Perth CBD is okay. 
Adelaide's fucking boring. So, like, Hobart's pretty cool. You go to Hobart, you go down to Salamanca Markets, you have some weird cheese, you have a strange pheasant pie, you have a Guinness, and then you leave. Like, think about the idea that as a property investor, there is only so much quality floating around, right? And then you can break it down even further if you want to get really sustainable. In, for example, the beaches, the, the green belts, or the urban CBD centre, you know, it's probably one project at any time which is breaking records for sustainability. And it's these questions that I want to bring up in this podcast today because it does feel like to me that there's a green swan event more often than in the past. And I'm old enough to understand that it's Australia's been through many, many uh, climate conditions, but it does feel like we're being told every single year now, this is a new record, new hottest day, new heaviest rain day, new heaviest hail day. So properties are under threat by green swans. And it is argued that green swans will trigger the next big crisis in certainly real estate. And I want to talk to you about what that really looks like from a cash flow point of view. Now, think about it. Today, there are some cities which, have, uh, which went underwater in the last floods, places like Port Macquarie. What does that do to the insurance of parts of that city? Well, of course, those premiums skyrocket in value. And again, if we own those assets and we're expecting to create income out of those assets and they've gone off and skyrocketed in value insurance premiums, we're already in trouble. And of course, I've talked about this before, the notion of the urban heat island effect. The urban heat island effect, of course, basically is that in our major areas, our major cities where people live, uh, where uh, you know, 5 million residents live in Sydney. There are suburbs in Sydney which are hotter more often than other suburbs which are simply cooler. Again, what is the value conversation if your suburb is cooler most, year of, most of the year round than an area which is much hotter? And again, this is what insurers are actually looking at. So I've sat in on some pretty detailed lectures around insurance and around future policy of how to assess the conversation of insurance. And those conversations lead to a couple of dynamics which are unfolding and I want to talk to you about this. Now, climate measurement standards are something insurers look at. I am already a participant in losing out because of climate change. I don't want to say I was a victim, but I certainly had to let go of a property because the writing was on the wall. I owned a great property in North Queensland 
And of course, North Queensland in Australia is in a torrential rain, flood, and also cyclone-prone area. And because of the cyclones and floods which were impacting the suburb I own that real estate in, the suburb and the property I owned fundamentally became uninsurable. Insurers withdrew from the idea of insuring the asset. And in the end, only one insurer would insure the the, the asset. And the premium to pay for the insurance started to meddle with any future income from the asset. Meaning, even if I held on and got growth, the cost to run the property was so expensive because of the insurance that even if I held the property 20 years and then tried to live off it from income and paid it off, I would get very little income from that asset into the future. In other words, my retirement was actually connected to an asset which was going to produce no income. And of course, once I kind of did the numbers, I realized it was time to bail and I owned that asset for around seven years and had to let it go. I liked liked the property. I actually got to use it. Uh, I was playing around with it in short-term rental uh, concepts. But the insurance just knocked it for six. And the climate risk of that asset was something that, as a property investor, taught me a big lesson about where this is all headed. By the turn of the century, within sort of 30 years, right, The day you retire, this is the craziest part. The day you retire, you're probably going to work for 30 more years max. 720,000 properties in Australia will not be insurable. Not be insurable. Now, think about, obviously, there's a lot of dwellings in Australia. So, there's plenty that will be. But there is also one in 20 that won't. And... It's that one in 20, which I certainly want to make sure we navigate away from as a property investor and we don't end up, as I did, a person who, who fundamentally, um, and I don't like the word victim, I don't think anyone's a victim, but I don't know what else to say at this point, a victim of climate change. So if we were to look at what insurers look at, They look at some pretty interesting modelling, right? Uh, For example, the danger index of bushfires is more prevalent in inland Australia, uh, more prevalent in uh, upper sort of Victoria, uh, southern New South Wales, around the sort of... uh, inland belt, if you like, from, uh, from really Queensland down to, to Victoria. If you comprehend, uh, you're probably looking at far greater risk of insurance in many of the bushfire sort of seasonally hot weather places. The other thing I think is really fascinating which does link to the urban heat island effect, is insurers measure hot days as an index of climate change. 
So days over 35 degrees Celsius is something in Australia that insurers look at. So if your suburb's getting more days that are 35 degrees or hotter, you're probably going to end up paying more insurance. Now think about that. Again, like I live on the coastline in Sydney or close to the coastline. On the same day, I can be experiencing a 28-degree weather pattern. However, someone further west or further inland is experiencing a 37-degree weather pattern. That 37 degrees, which is more common, is now going to cost that asset more insurance as a premium. So you look at some of these forecasts and then you start to realise there is some real interesting things to go and try and avoid. Now, if we were to look at the average days over 35 degrees in, for example, uh, Adelaide, on average in uh, 1995, there were 17 days that were over 35 degrees. Now, there's around 24 degrees, uh, 24 days, which are over 35. By 2030, it'll be closer to 30. Now, this is not as alarming as many other places. By 2050, Adelaide will have 46 days over 35 degrees. But then we look at some of these smaller communities, which the original people that founded Australia obviously had some smarts because they didn't put major cities in these places. Let's go to Dubbo. Dubbo, yes, Dubbo. Dubbo is a city in New South Wales. On average in 1995, it had 30 days over 35 degrees. Now it's got 40 days. By 2030, it is expected to have 50 days of over 35 degrees. So what does this mean? Drought, bushfire and much heavier rain conditions are probably going to impact the Dubbo market at some point. And here's the kicker. By the time you retire at 20, in 2050, and let's say you know, that's, that's your sort of retirement sort of process, Dubbo may actually have around 70 days over 35 degrees. Basically, almost one third of, one quarter of a year, a full calendar year, is going to be lived in a uh, heat wave, right? And so what I find so fascinating about looking at all the cities and their movement and when it comes to the average monthly temperatures and how many days a year are going to be extremely hot as part of insurer's forecast you can see the places where most people actually should invest, places like Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Perth, are fundamentally uh, fairly good and stable when it comes to the future of climate resilience. Let's take Sydney, for example. Um, in 1995, you had an average of five days over 35 degrees. Now it's more like 10 uh, into 2050, it'll be more like 17. 
and then into 2090, it'll probably be more like about 25 degrees. Oh, sorry, 25 days degrees, days. So you can see, um, arguably, Sydney has the best climate anywhere in the world. It's not. It's always pretty. Um, it's always pretty good, right? Even Brisbane, which you would which you would consider to be um, a a far more uh, you know hot climate is actually well balanced when it comes to the future of climate change. So insurers kind of rank um, our real estate into certain sectors, right? And these sectors are sort of in four parts. You've got Northern Australia, which is really from Broome, uh, you know, all the way across the, the Northern Pocket, you know, places like Darwin and Cairns and Townsville and Rockhampton. Uh, these, are, these are the northern quadrant. Then you've got the east coast, which is really uh, Sydney to Brisbane. Then you've got southern, southern Australia, which includes sort of Perth, uh, Adelaide, Melbourne, Hobart. And then you've got the rangelands from an insurance point of view, which is this big sort of inland desert area, which, let's face it, it's always hot there. It's always weird. There's lots of flies. So, um, you know, I think Alice Springs already has like 90 days a year that are over 35 degrees. So the insurers look at this and then they go, well, how many cyclones are going to occur in these four quadrants? Well, as we know, in Cairns, there's going to be a cyclone quite often. And as cyclones are getting more intensive, all of a sudden the insurance risk of that city just becomes more and more expensive. What about large hail? Again, insurers look at the velocity of that and what hail can do. Hail potentially not as damaging as a cyclone, but still very, very dam damaging. What about extreme weather events and heavy rain? And again, insurers look at this kind of uh, four-prong quadrant to look at it. What about extreme fires, right? Fire condition, drought and fire. We went through that one, right? We've already done that one. Half of Australia burnt down. You were getting smoke uh, literally bellowing all the way over to New Zealand back when the last big bushfires occurred. Again, when we look at the economic modelling, when we look at the city-by-city city modelling, there are just certain areas which stand out as problem marketplaces to avoid. Then we've got flood risk, right? Obviously, uh, our cities uh, are connected to rivers. Um, our smaller satellite precincts tend to be river cities that are connected in um, some way, shape or form through their uh, economic transformation through this kind of like river logic, right? So if you go to... You know, Ballina, it's a big river. If you go to Port Macquarie, it's got estuaries and rivers and, and things like this, right? And quite often, uh, they're, uh, I guess, also under threat when it comes to future insurance risks. Again, what is the extremeness of, of rain events, right? The rain seems to be getting harder and stronger and faster and coming down even thicker and harder. And this is, again, some of the, the ideas that 
insurers have. And then they also have to factor in drought. Yes, the great Australian system of drought and water management. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes. And as I've already alluded to, I was kind of a bit of a, I guess, uh, a victim of this where I had to let go of an asset because it was not performing and the future of its performance was impacted by insurance. Now, again, once your property is impacted by insurance, do you think someone's going to pay you a premium for the asset? And of course, the answer is no. For me, the answer was no. I got my money back, uh, made a small amount, not a big amount, I think 25 grand or something, and got out with the shirt on my back. But again, I think we need to make some very crucial decisions around the climate so we end up in the right place. At a global level, many countries are already dealing with this. Australia and New Zealand certainly uh, will have to deal with it. As we know, by 2050, much of the world is going to net zero. So you can see already behavioural changes in places like the United Kingdom, where they banned diesel cars by 2030. They banned petrol cars by 2030. By 2030, every uh, person driving will be needing to use an electric car. Again, this has a behavioural impact on insurance. It has a behavioural impact on uh, what type of real estate people will want to rent. It has a behavioural impact in the cost to retrofit electric power stations to homes, right? So these are all of the energy ideas which are starting to unfold when it comes to climate-resilient real estate. We know already, for example, in Melbourne this year, the state government has created uh, a household energy budget where property investors now have to retrofit energy-efficient items into homes to look after their tenants. And of course, for much older properties, this means almost like retrofitting a, a quite large expense into real estate. So when we look at real estate, quite often we're looking at it with only one lens. And if you listen to just about all the media's perspective on real estate, all of uh, property investments perspective on real estate, it's usually around market, around the risk of the market. Will the market go up? Will the market go down? Is it hard to buy? Is it uh, hard to borrow? Market, market, market. And property investors often, I guess, also just concentrate on this section, right? And this is, again, one of the biggest blunders property investors make when it comes to ending up financially free. They concentrate on only one thing, market. The market going down, I'm, you know, I'm not going to buy. The market going up, I'm going to rush in and buy, that kind of concept. But as we know... The market generally, when it comes to real estate, goes up over the longer term. There are other, I guess, risks which we need to consider. The second risk is liquidity risk. 
The third risk, operational risk. The fourth risk, insurance risk. So when I find real estate for people, I'm not just concerned about the market risk. I'm concerned about the liquidity risk, the operational risk, and the future insurance risk. This is ultimately so important for property investors. Liquidity is just your ability to sell the real estate. And liquidity is measured really of trying to get your asset back and turn it into cash. How quickly can you do that? And of course, the green economy, the green swan, fundamentally creates a liquidity risk for a lot of real estate. If it's, uh, if it's of the wrong building material, it has a liquidity risk, particularly from an insurance level. If it's, got, um, uh, if it's in the wrong neighbourhood, it's got a liquidity risk. Think about my property. It wasn't liquid because there wasn't too many people who wanted to buy it because obviously it was in a more cyclone-prone neighbourhood. Then you've got this risk which we, I often call uh, operational risk or um, capital cost risk. This again is where we have to think about real estate and go, well, what if Australia in- introduces what they did in the United Kingdom that everyone has to drive an electric car? What if every home in Australia had to reach a certain energy standard to buy a certain date? Okay, let's think about that for a moment. Now, in real estate, properties are measured by a 10-star energy rated standard. Where government is at the moment is six stars. Government wants most new homes or all new homes to be built at a six-star energy rated standard. That will rise fairly soon to a seven-star energy rated standard. Most older homes are at a standard of about one. For them to get to a standard of six would cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So again, it would be just like throwing money away if government actually needed society to do this. But this is a future operational risk because don't underestimate that we're going to need around another 5 million new dwellings between now and 2050. Between now and 2050, climate change may intensify. So again, operational risk of really old assets to bring them into a sustainable green economy, something which I look at as a property negotiator. I say, well, is the operational risk of this asset worth taking on? Because when my client needs to retire in 20 years from now, will much of their future revenue be tied up in future capital works costs or operational risk. The final risk is insurance risk. And again, this is the idea that certain suburbs are going to be hotter on any given day than another suburb. Certain areas will um, 
cop it worse than others. Now, as you know, I guess the weather is a bit unpredictable. Everyone is going to pay in one way, shape or form for future insurance costs. But as insurers openly state in many of their future forecasts, around one in 20 Australian properties anyway will be uninsurable. So for me, when I'm negotiating on real estate, I'm trying to make sure that I'm not going to end up in this place where it is fool's gold and it is not part of green economics. Green economics is about good safety for your future asset. It is much about good comfort as it is about good uh, ideas around holding on to your income into the future. The global zero emissions target by 2050 is real. The Paris Climate Change Accord is real. Homes will be asked to respond to something that is real. Even though we don't feel like it's real, it's real. There's 8 million properties that are existing today in Australia, according to the 2016 census. 8 million. By 2050, we're going to need another 5.6 million homes. Of that 13-odd million properties, potentially up to a million of them will not be insurable. Why? Because property accounts for 13% of Australia's overall annual greenhouse admissions. So do you think government's got a vested interest to try and clean up the property market? Of course they do. There could be some great economic benefits, um, new jobs. There could be um, certainly some uh, extra investment by government into the industry. But without question, what we're going to see into the future is an impact into the property market where sustainable real estate may actually be something that people and consumers look for because they value real estate on future operational costs. You might not now, but if consumer habits change and all of a sudden we're dealing with we want electric cars, we want smart, sustainable homes, then consumers are going to make that decision for you. It's a little bit like Bitcoin right now, right? Bitcoin is an early adapters marketplace. Fundamentally, people investing in Bitcoin do not believe that the fiat system of printing money of uh, central banks and governments is the future. Right now, early adopters are investing in sustainable homes which have the right technology so that they don't fall victim to a future change in economic uh, transformation. They are already bulletproof and own assets which are thermally efficient that already are four, five, six, seven, eight, nine star um, rated properties. If you look into the Canberra marketplace, you already see this in uh, practice, right? So you can go on to realestate.com and you can have a look at a property in Canberra. And if you read the bio of the property on realestate.com, you will see that it has to be advertised with a thermal standard. It might say energy rating 1.5 or energy rating 2.5. 
Again, where we're up to at a government level is six. And we know in Canberra there has been a correlation between properties which have a higher energy rated efficiency scoring better when it comes to capital growth than those that don't. And that is very, very interesting because uh, potentially it is a lead indicator for us as property investors as to what consumers want in the future, that they will actually assess real estate on its energy rating efficiency as much as anything else. And think about that for a moment. If you were to buy real estate and you never had an energy bill, would that influence your decision? If you were to be a property investor and you could offer real estate which came energy free to the tenant, would that actually uh, be a benefit for your back pocket? Could you potentially charge more rent? These are all the questions which are fundamentally unfolding in the real estate community today. Today, it's amazing to see it unfold and certainly something that I'm very conscious about so that when I assess the future of real estate for my clients and they wake up in 20 years from now where they're living on income, they're not experiencing the risk of insurance. They're not experiencing the risk of operational costs. They're not experiencing the risk of uh, future problems. And this is part of the big challenge. They will have a liquidable property. They'll be able to sell it and retire if they wanted to. And of course, everyone concentrates on the market, but what about liquidity? What about future capital costs? What about uh, certainly future insurance costs? So again, if you look in the Canberra marketplace, you're going to see that um, it's, already, it's already real, right? It's real in the European Union. Uh, it's real here in Australia, albeit in Canberra at this point, where you have to advertise your property's energy rating to sell your asset in Canberra. And again, to retrofit a home, which is perhaps scoring a 1.5, you would probably cost you about $300,000 just to get it up to about a 3.8 score on energy. And today, much of the, the newer stock is already scoring six and seven. Um, and certainly, I'm looking at real estate and that's targeting eight at the moment. Again, when it comes to insurance, do insurers look more favorably on climate-controlled real estate? They certainly do. And I can tell you, even some lenders now are giving discounts on property loans to be part of the green economy. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed the episode. I've certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. I will catch you next time on a fun-filled episode and we will play some more Donkey Kong and crack the code of property investment in both Australia and New Zealand. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favourite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.